Good morning. So if you have your Bible, open up to Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Over the past few weeks, we have been in the middle of a, a new series called Seven Choices, Life-Transforming Decisions. It's rooted in uh, Proverbs 2, 11, which says that discretion will watch over you and understanding will guard you. And what that word understanding means is wise decisions, wise living. So we've been asking this question, what are some wise decisions that we can make as believers that will transform our life to look more like Jesus? That's the gist of the series. And, uh, you know, recently, this was not even probably a month or two ago, I was in my driveway and teaching my second daughter how to ride a bike. It's, that is like my favorite thing, learned, helping them learn how to ride a bike. I did it with oldest Nora, and then I did it with Lydia. And it was one day, she was really struggling, no training wheels. We're out in the driveway, I'm holding the back, and it's great because the new bikes actually have a handle for the parents on the back seat. It's just it's to help them learn. So I'm following behind her, getting in my exercise, um, making sure that she stays upright. And there's just some things that didn't quite click, right? There's some things you got to continue to tell them over and over. All right, just keep pedaling. No matter what, just keep pedaling. Don't stop pedaling, you'll fall over. Whenever you turn, turn slowly and lean into it a little bit. There's some basic fundamentals that you have to teach them whenever they're riding a bike. Well, didn't get it that day, but went to bed, woke up the next morning, and it was like a light bulb came on. Immediately went out to go grab her bike and had it like a pro. But whenever we're learning anything, it doesn't matter if it's riding a bike, if you're learning how to play the piano, if you're learning how to throw a football, if you're learning how to lift weights, whatever it is, there's some basic fundamentals that you have to learn in the process. If you're learning ballet, you have to learn these five feet positions. Ask me how I know. My wife teaches ballet, and I have four daughters. If you're learning how to play the piano, you're learning scales. If you're learning how to play drums, you're learning paradiddles. If you're learning how to lift weights, you're learning proper form so that you don't hurt yourself, right? There's all these basics that you have to learn. Well, what we're going to see in Philippians chapter 4 today is that the same is true whenever it comes to living and giving generously as followers of Jesus. There are some basic gospel fundamentals that we have to learn and practice if we're going to grow in this area by the power of the Spirit. So the main idea from our text today is this. Our generosity grows with our grasp of the gospel. Our generosity grows with our grasp of the gospel. But we do have a problem. We have a problem. Our grasp on our resources is often tighter than our grasp on the gospel, especially in seasons like we're in right now. Inflation, there's recession worries. So what that causes us to do is to grab our resources tighter. Listen, I know that over the past year, I'm not the only one who contemplated buying chickens because eggs were about $8, what, you know, a carton. So it, it makes you worried about what's going on. But what the gospel does is it helps us relinquish our grasp on our resources to live and give generously. So what, but before we move on, I want to describe and define what biblical generosity is. What is biblical generosity? In a, a long definition, biblical generosity is the impulse of the heart to freely and graciously share your resources with others, especially for the sake of gospel mission and ministry. Simply put, it's sharing your stuff for the sake of the gospel. Okay? So again, our generosity grows with our grasp of the gospel. But the question is, how do we become generous people? 
I don't think anybody here would say, you know what, I just don't want to be generous. I want to be curmudgeon and hold on to all of my resources like a hermit and just not, not give to anybody. I don't think any one of us would say that. So how do we become generous people? By choosing to embrace and practice the gospel fundamentals that we find in our text today. So if you would, Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, and we'll read down through verse 20. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Our first gospel fundamental is found in verse 10. Think of others before yourself. Think of others before yourself. If we're going to become generous people, we need to begin practicing thinking of others before ourselves. If you notice in verse 10, Paul says, I rejoice now that your concern for me has been revived. You have to remember that Philippi is a Roman colony and it embraced every bit of what it meant to be a Roman citizen. The culture in Rome was me-centered. It was all about me, all about what I want, me getting more position, more status, more wealth above everybody else inherently competitive. It was about getting ahead. Paul is encouraging the Philippians and us to have a different mindset, to, to adopt a different mindset. You might remember in Philippians chapter 2, 3 through 4, Paul says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That word, have this mind, is the same word here used for concern. In other words, the Philippians have now what he's just said, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ, this, this mindset that looks to the needs of others. They're now modeling that. They have modeled that mindset in their concern for Paul. But then he says that, he says, your concern for me has been revived because you had no opportunity. What does that mean that they had no opportunity? Well, there's a couple of things that could be the case. First, the distance between where the Philippians were and where Paul was could have been too long. To get a gift to, across a, a great distance was something that was dangerous. It could have cost somebody's life. It was very uh, treacherous to be able to do that. So it's possible that the distance was, was the problem. It's possible that Paul being in prison was the problem, or he could have been under arrest in Jerusalem. Likely here, though, he's imprisoned in Rome, and now the Philippians have had this opportunity to give to him. It's not like Paul had a website where the Philippians could just go on there and log in and donate, click the donate button to, to support Paul, and they didn't have an app that they could have given through. But this word that he says, your concern for me has now been revived. It's a beautiful word that speaks of like flourishing, something that is now coming back to new life again. 
It's not as if they forgot about Paul and then they remembered Paul and decided to give. It's not as if Paul had slipped their mind. They had continued to show concern. They just didn't have an opportunity to show it. Think of a tree that goes dormant in the winter, right? Life is still there. You just don't see it. But in the spring, when the opportunity comes and the circumstances are right, you see the tree come to full life. You see the flowers. You see the blossoms. This is the picture of what's going on here with the Philippians. And the last thing with this I want you to notice is that Paul doesn't say, I rejoiced in you or I rejoiced in your gift that you sent. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord. Why would he say that? Because it's ultimately the Lord who has moved the Philippians, who has worked deeply in the heart of the Philippian church to give to Paul's ministry, to give to the expanse of gospel mission and ministry. God has done this, and he's worked through the Philippians. The reality is God works through his people to support gospel mission and ministry. You've probably heard you know, your parents say at one point or another, money doesn't grow on trees, right? I've heard that a time or two. Money doesn't just fall from the heavens, right? God works through his people, through means to advance the gospel. But thinking of others and their interests, it's a problem for us because just like Rome, we struggle with a me-centered mentality. We have this powerful cultural idol of me. We are the highest priority, and if anything gets in the way of what I want, it ain't going to happen. Maybe you've gotten this impulse to help support a brother or sister in Christ who's been in need, whether it's taking them a meal or, or, or buying them something or paying for something that, was, that they were in need or even giving to the church. And you have this check in your gut and you, you feel it like, oh, no, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. You begin to think about all the things you have to pay for or all the, the things that you want to buy. And if you do that, then you're not going to be able to do this. That's that cultural idol of me and thinking of myself first working in your heart. That's why we have to adopt this new mentality that we have in Christ, thinking of others before ourselves. Christ thought of us when he was going to the cross. Christ thought of us when his hands were being nailed to the cross. Christ thought of us when he cried out his last cry. Think of others before yourself. How has God been challenging you in your life to give and live generously with others? When somebody goes into the hospital, do you have the impulse to take them a meal, to send them a text, to call them? When somebody comes home from the hospital, do you try to do everything you can in your life group to support them and let them know that they're loved? Think of others before yourself. That's the first gospel fundamental. Number two is in verses 11 through 14. Learn to be satisfied in Christ. Learn to be satisfied in Christ. Paul wants to be very careful here because he appreciates the gift that the Philippians have sent. He's humble enough to receive it. But it's not as if he's been sitting in his prison cell checking his watch, just, man, I, I wish those Philippians would hurry up and send me something. That's not his mentality. Why? He says, because I've learned in every situation... To be content. Whether he has great need or plenty, he has learned the secret of contentment. So we're going to look at contentment in general, and then contentment specifically related to our material resources. Uh, first, Paul says, in whatever situation I have learned to be content. This whatever situation can encompass all seasons of life. 
So what is contentment? Because it's really easy to evade us. Let me start by telling you what it's not. Contentment is not stoicism. Stoicism is this idea that I'm just going to play the hand I've been dealt. I just got to deal with what I have and just make it through. I can't change anything, so here we go. The problem with stoicism is that it makes no demand for and provides no resources for joy in the middle of it. You just have to suck it up. Keep moving forward. You can't change it, so just deal. Contentment does not deny the reality that you're facing. One theologian put it this way, contentment still calls a cross a cross. It doesn't try to redefine the trial into something that's pleasant. It still calls the cross a cross. And then lastly, contentment is not complacency. It doesn't just allow you to just drift and mope and moan through the circumstance just being complacent. Contentment allows you to call out to God, to ask him to remove the thorn, but to trust him when he doesn't. Jeremiah Burroughs was a Puritan who wrote a book in the 1600s called The Art of Christian Contentment. And he has a definition in there of contentment. It's great, but it's written in 1645 English. So I've tried to make it a little simpler for us to understand, and it should be on the screens. So what is this contentment that we're looking for? That Paul says, I've learned this. What is this? He says, contentment is a gracious inward condition of the heart by which we say by faith, God has me where he has me. God has given me what he has given me. According to God's love and wisdom, this is what is best for me today. And by God's power in Christ, I can live faithfully in this season. I'm going to say that again. Contentment is a gracious inward condition of the heart by which we say by faith, God has me where he has me. God has given me what he has given me. According to God's love and wisdom, this is what is best for me today. And by God's power in Christ, I can live faithfully in this season. One important word in there is the word today. God calls you to live content today. You can't live content in tomorrow. You have to live contently in what it, your circumstances presently. Our family loves to play Uno. We love playing Uno. And I like to be the dealer, but sometimes me and Nora kind of fight it out. Well, in Uno, you have the dealer, or any other card game, you have a dealer, and they pass out the cards. They're supposed to be really well shuffled, right? So there's no cheating enabled. We pass out the cards, and then you look at your hand, and you're like, oh, okay, this is a really good hand or this is a really bad hand, but I've just got to work with what I've got. You see, contentment recognizes that God is not an, a disinterested Uno dealer who's just handing out random hands left and right. God is our sovereign Father who wisely orchestrates our lives in a way that is good for you and good for his glory. That doesn't mean it's easy, though, to embrace contentment whenever you look at your life and you say, this is not an easy hand to play right now. I've been there. I've asked God. I've thrown my hands up in confusion, wondering, Lord, what are you doing? What is going on? This makes zero sense. I want this, but this is what I get. What is going on? It's not easy to be content. Why? Because it's something we have to learn. We're not born being content. Think about a toddler. 
A toddler is about the most discontented creature you can ever come across. They're just about not happy with anything that happens in their life. You can hand them a snack. It's not the one they want. You can take them to go take a nap. They don't want to take a nap. They want the toy their sister is playing with. How do they become content? Well, you have to give them what they want. But that is a contentment that comes from outside, a placating. That's not an inward condition that is worked in the heart. Do you complain when you don't get what you want? Whenever you're faced with a new life situation that's unexpected, and it might be pretty terrible, whether it's a new living situation, a new diagnosis, a pay cut, what is your response in that situation? Where does your heart move? Does it move toward complaining or does it move toward Jesus? Does it move toward the Lord and resting in his sovereign hand over your life? We're a lot more like toddlers than we think. So that's contentment in general. Now I want to move toward contentment with what we have. We were, uh, there was a verse that we had at, in our house that we're memorizing, uh, girls are memorizing, and it's uh, out of First Timothy 6. And we're trying to define contentment with them, and contentment means you are happy with what you have. Happy with what you have. So that's what Paul's really talking about. He says that there's a secret to be content and satisfied whether you have plenty or whether you have not plenty, whether you have poverty or abundance. Do you complain when you're in the hamburger helper season of life and only rejoice when you have the A5 Wagyu steak? The word Paul uses here for abundance literally means leftover. It means that you have leftovers. You have more than you need. As a kid, I hated the sound of hearing leftovers for dinner. But as an adult, I love it because it means you don't have another night to cook. And it, but if you think beyond that, it, think to the principle of it. It means you had more than you need. The Lord has provided for you more than what you needed for in the moment. Now, you might think that contentment is only something that you need whenever things are going bad. But the reality is you need to be content when things are going well, too, when you have abundance. Why? Because there are twin temptations that come with poverty and riches. With poverty, it's the temptation to doubt God's goodness and to envy those who have more. With abundance, the temptation is to forget it, forget that it's God, that it's God who provides, and in your pride, pursue more and more riches. That's what 1 Timothy 6 talks about. It says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich will fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Riches can tempt you just as much as poverty can. And Proverbs has wisdom for us. In Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. In either case, Paul says, I've learned this secret. So how do we learn this? Because I don't, know, I don't know about you, I don't want to be one of those believers who never learns contentment. But how do we learn this? Verse 13 is the answer. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. 
The choice to be generous is first a choice to be satisfied in Christ. The choice to be generous is first a choice to be satisfied in Christ. And since this verse is one of the most misinterpreted, let me just go ahead and say that Philippians 4.13 is not a promise of grand achievement. The Lord will help you do what you want. It is a promise of guaranteed endurance. Paul is saying that whether I'm facing plenty or hunger, Christ is the one who strengthens me to endure. Jesus is his strength. Because in Christ, we not only have salvation, but we have every resource we need to endure the present circumstance. Do you face poverty? Look to Jesus. Foxes had holes and birds of the air had nests of the air. Birds of the air had nests, but the Son of Man did not have a place to lay his head. You suffer under pain in your body. Christ suffered under pain unimaginable through his torture and death on the cross. Do you suffer under, under any injustice? Christ suffered the greatest injustice with a sinless Lamb of God, the sinless Son of God, took upon himself sins that he did not commit to save us. Think further into the sufficiency of Jesus. Jesus is truly all you have. This is why Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Money can be taken away. Position can be taken away. Everything can be taken away. But when everything is stripped away, you're left with really all you need. And that's Jesus. Learn to be satisfied in him. Learn to be satisfied in his work for you, who were, with, once, were without hope in the world, who were disobedient to God, but Christ obeyed for you. Learn to be satisfied with his love for you, who loved you to the extent that he went to the cross to die for you, to pay for your sins. Learn to be satisfied in his grace toward you, that even as a follower of Jesus, we don't always get it right. Yet he continues to shower you with grace. And Ephesians 2.7 says that it is his purpose in saving us that he would, by his immeasurable riches, show us his immeasurable riches of grace and kindness toward us in Christ. That's why he saves us. Learn to be satisfied in his promise to you that no matter what you go through, he will never leave you. Satisfaction with Jesus is necessary for you to have the heart to live and give generously. So that brings us to our third gospel fundamental. Partner in giving to gospel mission and ministry. In verses 15 and 16, Paul kind of rehearses a little bit of the relationship that he has with the Philippians. If you look back with me, he says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Paul looks at this church and he says, when nobody else was there, you had my back. Maybe you have a friend like that. If you, if you called them right now, they would pick up the phone and ask, how can I help you? That's this relationship that Paul has with the Philippian church. What has happened is Paul came in and he preached the gospel. He says the beginning of the gospel. When Paul stepped foot in Macedonia, this is the first time Paul's been here, and God, through the gospel, does a magnificent new creation work of saving people and building a new body in a new place, a new church in a new place. The kingdom has now broken in at Philippi. God has done an amazing work here. But the primary reason for the Philippians partnering with Paul is not because of Paul. He says, you're a partner in the gospel. 
the gospel is still primary. It's not because Paul was eloquent. It's not because Paul was a cool guy that they partnered with Paul. It's because of the gospel. God worked grace in them. And this is evident even in, the cha- in Acts chapter 16, whenever you read the story of Paul in Philippi. You see what happens. People get saved. Lydia gets saved, a wealthy woman in the area, and she immediately invites them into their home to share her home with them. Food, clothing. Whenever Paul and Silas get in prison, you remember the story. They're singing in prison, and the doors break off, and the Philippian jailer's like, oh, no, my prisoners are going to escape, right? After he becomes a believer, he invites Paul and Silas into his home to care for them, to feed them. And now the whole Philippian church is supporting Paul in gospel mission and ministry. This is, generosity is a natural product of the gospel. As we understand and grow in the gospel, our generosity should grow as well. So this, this kind of helps us see that one of the primary ways we live out partnership in the gospel is by regularly giving to the mission and ministry of the church. Now before you say, well, the Philippians must have had some extra cash laying around, and I sure don't. Or, I can't be generous. Maybe you get discouraged a little bit because I don't have enough. The Philippian church is actually an example to both here because they were extremely poor. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and listen to, listen to how he describes this act of generosity from the Philippian church. He's using the church as an example to the Corinthians. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, notice this, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Generosity is primarily not about an amount, but about the heart of the giver. So how do we become regular givers? How do we become someone who regularly gives? First, plan out your giving. Start the new month with a new budget that factors in giving to the church. Maybe you could eliminate some unnecessary expenses. I think some of us need to heed the age-old wisdom that was passed down to us through our parents whenever we were sitting in the back seat of the car asking for McDonald's on the way home. We have food at the house. Maybe we don't need to eat out tonight. Give your best through the church. God doesn't ask for our leftovers. Give your best and be cheerful about giving. And that's the hard one. I want you to notice the Philippian church begged Paul to be a part of gospel ministry by giving. Are we as enthusiastic whenever we write our tithe check, whenever we give through the app, Is it just something we're doing to get a tax write-off? Is it something we're doing to feel good or check a box? Or is it because we genuinely love the gospel and want people to know Jesus? We can be cheerful, though, by remembering, number four, remembering the blessings of giving. There's two specific blessings that Paul mentions here. First, you will produce fruit. And second, you will please God. You will produce fruit and you will please God. Paul says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. 
In chapter 1 in Philippians, Paul says that he wants them to abound in love and be filled with the fruit of righteousness. He's not talking about here, this fruit is their salvation, but it is the confirmation and evidence of their salvation. This fruit that would increase to their account. And this account is not a present account, it is an eternal account. That when they stand before God, this fruit will be so overwhelming that their salvation will be so obvious. I want to take a moment to address um, some prosperity teaching that many of you have probably heard. Some have used this verse and others like it to say that if you give to the church, God will give you back money in multiples in the present. If you give, he'll multiply it by 10 and give it right back to you. That is contrary to everything the New Testament says. Okay? God does not promise perpetual prosperity to believers. Paul has just said, I've had seasons of poverty and I've had seasons of of plenty. But in any of them, I can be content because of Christ. He says, you'll produce this fruit. And then he says, you'll please God. In verse 18, he says, "These, these offerings, this offering was a sacrifice that was acceptable and pleasing to God. Why and how does our generosity please God? Because it mirrors and models the gospel. It mirrors the heart of God who sent his son. Paul says, these gifts that you sent, the idea of sending is something going out from you. God sent his son into the world to save sinners. And now the Philippians are sending out a gift to have more and more sinners trust in Jesus. But it also models the life of Christ, who sacrificed his life for us. Giving is not merely a financial decision. It's a gospel decision. And yes, it does please God when our lives grow more in conformity to his generous nature and character. We don't live to please God so we can earn his favor. We live to please God because he has shown us his favor in Christ. He has shown us his grace in Christ. You have to get the order right. And then the last gospel fundamental. Rest in the promise of God's provision. Rest in the promise of God's provision. Up until this point, Paul has been thanking the church for supplying his needs. But now he turns his attention to theirs. I want you to remember that many in this church experienced extreme poverty. Paul says a severe test of affliction. They had legitimate needs, and yet they were still generous. Paul says, and my God will supply he speaks intimately of his relationship with God. He's seen firsthand the faithfulness of God in providing for him. So he knows that God will be faithful to provide for them. The promise is that God would supply all of our needs in Christ. But here's a question we often don't think about. Who determines what we need? We think we know what we need, both spiritually and materially. But God knows us and our situation better than we do. If God would allow us to experience difficult moments and what we see as lack or material need or spiritual struggle, we need to understand that he is working in us to produce trust, character, and faith, and he will supply us with strength to endure. Sometimes he does legitimately provide for our material needs to show us his gracious provision. How many of you have wondered if a bill would be paid or a car would be fixed and somehow the right person shows up at the right time and all this works together? 
I have plenty of stories like that. In high school, um, I was 15. I just entered into high school at this church and was going on my first mission trip overseas to Honduras. I was nervous not just because I was going to travel, but because the price tag on it was a little expensive. And I was thinking, how am I going to pay for this? Well, we wrote support letters and sent those out. And I found out just a few weeks later that some anonymous guy in the church had paid for the entire thing. Still today, don't know who that was. But he was generous above and beyond what he gave to the church to send someone to go preach the gospel somewhere. In college, I was headed to, with a friend, to visit a college that he was wanting to attend out of state. And I was going for moral support because I couldn't afford the, <laughs> the college. And we're sitting in the admissions office and the, my friend's dad, they're talking about scholarships with the admissions lady. My friend's dad goes, hey, what about him? He plays bass. I'm thinking, really? A scholarship for playing bass? Bass is the most underappreciated instrument <laughs> in the entire universe. Okay? We've got some great bass players here, by the way. Mark, Damon, all of them, they're great. John Michael, all of them are amazing. So appreciate them. They're underappreciated. Okay? But she looks back at me and she goes, well, actually, we have a band that travels around and plays gospel music at these different churches, and there's a scholarship with it, and our bass player is graduating. There's auditions in two weeks. I go back for auditions. I get the, the gig. And... Come to find out, it pays for half of the cost to go to school there. As an adult, maybe you've experienced times where all at once, it seems like the rain starts falling. All of the things start coming due. There's all these unexpected expenses that you just weren't anticipating. Something breaks, something goes down, and it all happens at once usually, right? Well, we were having one of those days, and I was like, all right, I'm just going to go walk outside, get, get, the, get some air. I walk to the mailbox to check the mail, and I open the mailbox and look, f start fumbling through, and I lift out this envelope, and it's a check. And it's not enough to cover everything, but it's enough for me to feel through the Holy Spirit, God looking at me and going, what are you worried about? Church, your God is the sovereign Father and creator over all things. He created you and knitted you together intricately in your mother's womb. Every one of your days is in his book already before you've lived it. He cares about you more than the sparrows, the lilies, the birds of the air. What are you worried about? Rest in the promise of God's provision. Church, whenever we practice resting in the promise of God's provision, he will provide us with the strength that we need to endure, knowing that he knows what we need when we need it, both spiritually and materially. Whenever we do that, living and giving generously will become a whole lot easier. Now, as the Philippians had an opportunity to give, they finally had the opportunity to give to Paul, and they took it. We have actually an opportunity today, and I want to challenge you to be generous beyond your regular tithes and offerings, to see more of our students go to camp. Every year, our students go away to student camp. They get disconnected from the internet. They get disconnected from their phones. Hallelujah. They get disconnected from social media. Hallelujah. Again, every year, our students go away. And when I was a student, summer camp afforded me some of the most formative times 
in my relationship with Jesus, it was actually at a student camp where I experienced what I know now is, was my first call to ministry. So in light of that, I'd like you to watch this short video of one of our students. My favorite part about camp is just being able to get away from home and just be able to like learn about God more and without having distractions like my phone or like having to do chores or this and that, just being able to like really focus on my, my relationship with God and just, yeah, no distractions. And it's all about me, my friends, and God. And also being able to like find a certain friend group that you can actually be invested, like that will hold you accountable in staying invested in the Word and praying and reading your Bible and going to church and just having, keeping a strong relationship with God and that will, that you know will stick with you, with your walking God and that you know you can go to when you have questions or when you have like, when you're going through certain things. I've been raised in a Christian household so like I knew, I knew that Jesus died for my sin, I knew that He loved me and I knew that He forgave me for my sin but I didn't, I always said I was a Christian, but I didn't truly know what being a Christian was. And while at camp, um, Pastor Ricky, he was talking about um, sin, and he was talking about what it means to be a true Christian, what it means to have a true relationship with God, and I was really reflecting on it, and I realized, oh, I said I was a Christian, but I am not a Christian. I am walking in the ways of the world, and I am falling into temptation. I am not trying to live in the way that a Christian should be living. So um, I realized that I didn't have a true relationship, and I talked to Rebecca Duran, and she just kind of, she really just talked to me. She went into more depth about what it means to have a true relationship with him, and I told her that I wanted to actually like have a relationship with God and that I wanted to stay invested in a relationship with Him. So we prayed together and I walked up to Pastor Neil and I told him I wanted to get baptized and so the next day we went to a lake and me and one of my friends were baptized. If I could tell someone on the fence about going to camp or not, um, I would say just come. Like it's a great time, there's a lot of fun activities that we do and it's just a great time to be isolated from a lot of distractions and you get to make new friends and hopefully like make stronger connections with leaders and people that you may not have been super close with and yeah just camp is fun so come to camp yeah so what we're what we want to ask you to do is pray for the students that are going but also one of the challenges that some students face is the cost of camp. At this point, we know that we need at least 20 scholarships, which at about $250 per camper, that's $5,000. We need about $5,000 to send these 20 students to camp. Now, we've set up a few ways for you to give financially if the Lord is moving you to do so. One is a QR code that will be on the screen here in just a second. You can take your phone out, scan that QR code. It's also outside at the Next Steps table. That will take you straight to a giving platform where you'll enter into, you'll enter the amount that you want to give into that platform, and it goes specifically to a fund that has been set up for student camp. So you can do it that way, or on your way out just to the right at the Next Steps area, there'll be an envelope there uh, with a, a little place where you can fill out how much you want to give. And if you can't do it today, you can take it home, bring it back next week or the next week. Um, but the point is, is that we want to help our students go to encounter Jesus at camp. We want them to have this experience where they're taken away from the world for a while, placed underneath the word, 
to hear what God has to say to them and see what God does. Our generosity will grow with our grasp of the gospel, and as we grasp these fundamentals that we've talked about today, thinking of others more than ourselves, learning to be satisfied in Jesus, partnering together in giving to the gospel mission, remembering the blessings of giving, and resting on the promise of God, we will grow in our generosity. We'll mirror the heart of God. We'll model the sacrifice of His Son.